Welcome to this EHIV Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. Our guest today is Dr. Elise Worcell, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Geographic Medicine and Infectious Disease at Tufts Medical Center. And we're here today to follow up on a recent newsletter issue on HIV and lung disease. EHIV Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. This program is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and Vive Healthcare. Learning objectives for this audio program include identify important drug-drug interactions that may impact the treatment of ischemic heart disease in people living with HIV, summarize HIV medication interactions that could influence the treatment of common comorbid diseases, and describe potential drug-drug interactions between antiretroviral agents and common over-the-counter medications. Dr. Worcell has disclosed that she is a site principal investigator for Aviv Healthcare Study, and she's indicated that there will be no references to the unlabeled or unapproved use of any drugs or products in today's discussion. Dr. Worcell, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And your newsletter issue, Doctor, you focused on some of the challenges in managing lung diseases in people living with HIV. Today, what I'd like to do is expand that focus to discuss some of the other common comorbid conditions affecting those on antiretroviral regimens, and in particular, potentially dangerous drug-drug interactions that clinicians may not be aware of. Uh, so please start us out, if you would, Dr. Roussel, with a patient scenario. So a common patient scenario is uh, an older woman, 55-year-old woman, middle-aged woman, with a history of hypertension and HIV on m tricetabine tenofovir alafenamide and ritonavir-boosted darunavir, who presents to the emergency room with chest pain. She's taken to the cath lab and found to have complete blockage of one of her coronary arteries and requires stenting. And then she goes to the cardiac care unit following the procedure. Is heart disease common among individuals with HIV? And do we know why? We've actually found it quite common. There's increasing data that people with HIV have something called premature aging, which means that they have things like heart disease that show up earlier in their lifespan. There's multiple mechanisms that people have postulated might be related for increased risk of heart disease, including a higher prevalence of traditional risk factors such as smoking, diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia, increased inflammation and immune activation, and also the side effects of antiretroviral medications, especially some of the older antiretroviral medications. There's been an increasing focus for HIV providers to look at the primary preventative measures in people living with HIV, such as cholesterol-lowering agents, smoking cessation, and dietary modification. I actually recently had a patient come in with acute coronary artery syndrome, and there were interesting questions that came up for the management of acute care and post-catheterization care with the medication she was on to treat her HIV. Of course, the acute response to the cardiac event should take place, and then you could discuss medications afterwards. But since HIV is a chronic disease, it's possible that when patients come in for acute coronary issues, the med list will not be reviewed intensely and interaction is not recognized. And since also HIV medications are rapidly evolving, it's often difficult for specialists who don't manage HIV medications daily to be familiar with the names and the doses of the, and interaction. I found in my practice that the outpatient and inpatient pharmacists can be really helpful in pointing out potential interactions and preventing any adverse interactions between medications. 
for clinicians that are interested, there's a really great review about HIV and ischemic heart disease in the January 2017 edition of the JAK Journal, Journal of American Cardiology. And there will be a link to this journal article available in the transcript version of the podcast. In someone living with HIV who has an acute vascular event like a heart attack, what does the clinician need to know to minimize drug-drug interactions? So the first question in this situation is usually related to the acute post-lipid management. In the setting of an acute coronary event or cardiovascular guidelines, usually recommend high-dose statins. There's been several large multicenter trials that either compare the use of a statin to placebo, a high-potency statin to a less-potency statin, or a higher dose of a statin to a lower dose of a statin. And these studies have found that giving a higher-dose potent statin in or during the acute coronary syndrome leads to decreases in morbidity and mortality. The most commonly used statin is 80 milligrams of atorvastatin, but it is important to recognize that statins can interact with HIV medications. Some statins, like simvastatin, are metabolized by the CYP3A4 enzyme, and protease inhibitors are actually a potent inhibitor of the CYP3A enzyme. So simvastatin levels are significantly increased when someone is taking a protease inhibitor. So co-administration of the simvastatin and a protease inhibitor has actually led to fatal rhabdomyolysis and should be avoided. Co-administration of atorvastatin is not contraindicated, but the dose should be reduced since atorvastatin is metabolized by CYP3A4 as well, but it is less so metabolized than simvastatin. So again, discussions with pharmacists are really helpful to decide what the dose should be. Each protease inhibitor will have a different level of interaction with a statin. So some people would use 20 milligrams of atorvastatin, and others might even start a lower dose. The timing of the high-dose statin after a vascular insult is usually based on the LDL. It's an evolving practice, so I often consult with a cardiologist or neurologist who's seeing the patient to assist me in timing of when I could come down off that high-dose statin. If a patient needs a high-dose statin and is on ritonavir, one possibility is giving the statin, for example, a torvastatin, but dosing lower at 20 milligrams instead of 80 milligrams. The safest statins by far are pativastatin and fluvastatin, but those aren't usually used in the acute post-cerebrovascular or coronary artery event. Some things to worry about once the patient is out of the acute stage and on a high-dose statin or a statin at all is that diabetes, muscle toxicity, hair loss, and some other long-term complications have been linked to statins. So reducing unnecessary exposure is important. A good reference that I've used is by Wiggins and all, Recommendations for Managing Drug-Drug Interactions with Statins and HIV Medications that was published this year in the American Journal of Cardiovascular Drugs. And the link to this journal will be available in the transcript version of this podcast. What about other vascular events like strokes? What do clinicians need to be aware of in those circumstances? So neurologists recommend 80 milligrams of atorvastatin largely because of the SPARKLE trial, which was done in 2008. The dosing after the acute stroke actually needs similar adjustment. It's important to reduce the dose of the statin when possible. People presenting with strokes usually have fasting lipids drawn in the setting of the stroke. So high-dose atorvastatin is recommended right after the stroke. Then the focus could be on lipid management by guidelines. And often high-dose atorvastatin is not needed to bring lipids to goal. So most patients with cardiovascular or cerebral vascular disease are going to be prescribed a statin after an event. 
How should patients with HIV be counseled when they begin statin therapy? I think similar to other patients without HIV who get a statin, you should have a conversation about potential side effects. The most common side effect seen with statins are muscle aches and pains. And so everyone who's starting a statin medication should be counseled to watch for these type of side effects. Besides the statins, what other medications commonly used for vascular events have interactions with HIV medications? Other than the statins, there are quite a few other medications used for cardiovascular events that do have interactions with HIV meds. Warfarin, which is used to thin the blood, can interact with etravirine and efavirenz. So close monitoring is often necessary to make sure that the INR is up in the target range. Clopidogrel, is known by the trade name Plavix, is actually activated by one of the enzymes that etravirine inhibits. So if you're giving a patient clopidogrel and etravirine, there might be a risk that the clopidogrel is not at high enough levels to prevent restenosis of the artery. People who have HIV also have other diseases in the setting of cerebrovascular events and cardiovascular events that make the drug interactions more complicated. There are some reports of darunavir and ritonavir being given to a patient who also has latent TB, and then the patient gets clopidogrel on top of it, and there were complex interactions that led to the clopidogrel not working. Some of the newer direct 10A inhibitors like clopidogrel are actually processed through the cytochrome 3A4. So proteus inhibitors may increase their concentrations of these meds and lead to increased risk of bleeding. Additionally, drugs like efavirenz may decrease the concentrations. So there's a lot of complex interactions with all these meds. And I think what's easiest to do is to go to some of the resources, online resources. One of the ones that I use is the guidelines for the use of antiretroviral agents in HIV-1 infected adults and adolescents, which is offered through the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And the link will be provided as part of the transcript for this podcast as well. well. Thank you for that case and discussion, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Elise Roussel from Tufts Medical Center in just a moment. You've been listening to EHIV Review, a combination newsletter and podcast program delivered via email to subscribers. Newsletters are published every other month. In each issue, an expert author reviews the current literature in an area of specific importance to clinicians treating patients with HIV, including infectious disease specialists, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and others. In the month following each newsletter, the expert author provides a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you're listening to now, to help translate that new information into clinical practice. These podcasts are also available as downloadable transcripts. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Subscription to EHIV Review is provided without charge or prerequisite. For more information about this educational activity, to subscribe and receive EHIV Review newsletters and podcasts without charge, and to access back issues, please go to our website, www.ehivreview.org. Thank you. Welcome back to this EHIV Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. We've been talking with Dr. Elise Wurzel from Tufts Medical Center about managing concomitant diseases in people living with HIV and the potential dangers of drug-drug interactions. So to continue in that vein, doctor, let me ask you to bring us another patient scenario. So a 25-year-old woman with a history of asthma, depression, opioid dependence, 
comes to you because she has a new diagnosis of HIV. Her CD4 count is 500. She's interested in starting HIV medications. Her current medications include an albuterol inhaler, which she takes once a month for her asthma, methadone, and oral contraceptives. New positive HIV diagnosis with, among other things, pre-existing asthma. So, from the perspective of drug-drug interactions, asthma and HIV, what should clinicians be aware of? Asthma is pretty common, so understanding the interactions is important. Glucocorticoids, such as fluticasone and budesonide, are metabolized again through that CYP3A4 mechanism. Ritonavir and cobacistat, which are two of our medications used to boost or enhance HIV meds and allow for once daily dosing, can inhibit the CYP450-3A4 isozyme. Ritonavir is a much stronger inhibitor, but cobacistat also does. So what patients are at risk for is when they get inhaled corticosteroid, sometimes even an intranasal corticosteroid, the steroid levels can be increased in the body. There's actually several case reports of iatrogenic adrenal insufficiency when people are taking ritonavir to help treat the HIV and then intranasal or inhaled steroids to treat lung disease or sinus disease. Some symptoms associated with adrenal insufficiency include facial swelling, central obesity, weight gain, striae, and easy bruising. There's a really great case report by Sabari et al., which I review in the newsletter, and which found that about 5% of people who actually experienced adrenal insufficiency in the setting of concomitant inhaled steroids and intranasal steroids did not have normalization of their cortisol levels after discontinuation. So they had long-term effects of this, which is pretty scary for a clinician and for the patient. So for someone with asthma or COPD or even seasonal allergies, avoiding ritonavir may prevent future med interactions and make the treatment of their other diseases easier. Otherwise, some inhaled steroids like beclomethazone and flunicilide are catabolized by the non-CYP3A4 enzymes, so they can be safely used with HIV medications. Another alternative, which I've been using with one patient, is a non-corticosteroid called a leukotriene receptor antagonist. This is also known as montelukast. It may be helpful if drug interactions are complicating decisions for HIV medications. Most importantly, communication between the clinician treating the HIV and the clinician treating the lung disease is important to make sure they're on the same page about potential interactions. What about the hormonal contraceptive she's on? Would you expect that to be a problem? The relationship between hormonal contraceptives and HIV medications is complicated. Hormonal contraceptives may contain estrogen, progestin, or both, and are often metabolized through the same SIP mechanism. The parent compound and active metabolites are also processed through this mechanism. Certain HIV medications like efavirenz, cobacistat, and even the older school nevirapine can cause fluctuations in the concentration of hormones, and breakthrough pregnancies have been reported. So if patients are on these meds, barrier protection is important to recommend. Ritonavir-boosted regimens may reduce concentrations of the hormones, and even unboosted regimens like atazanavir can lead to increased hormone concentrations. There are certain medications that are pretty safe with oral contraceptives, like raltegravir and rilpilvirine, so that might be your go-to if you know someone wants to be on oral contraceptives. Alternatively, the intrauterine devices, also known as IUDs and the depot shots, seem safe with most antiretroviral medications, so patients can be counseled about the benefits of these forms of contraception. 
There's no data to suggest that the implantable or the intravaginal hormone delivery devices interact with HIV medications. Most importantly, though, the conversation with patients about what they would like and what would make their life easiest for oral contraception or other types of contraception is always the best practice. Depression, another of this patient's comorbid conditions. What are the important drug-drug interactions to consider? Comorbid depression is common in people living with HIV, and treatment of depression is important to increase adherence to HIV meds. Overall, the SSRIs are preferred over the tricyclics. There are some case reports and pharmacokinetic studies showing that there are changes leading to increased levels of SSRIs with ritonavir-based treatments, and there's actually one report of an SSRI and protease inhibitor leading to serotonin syndrome. General recommendations are starting low and titrating to patient response. Counseling the patient to avoid any medications that are not given as a prescription is really important. Medications like alprazolam and diazepam are common drugs of misuse, and they can actually interact with ritonavir. Also, conversations about other illicit drugs like ecstasy, methamphetamines, and something called bath salts is also important because those can interact with HIV meds. We should really try to focus on being open and non-judgmental with our patients so they can let us know what meds that they are taking, what illicit meds that they have been experimenting with, and make decisions for the best options for treating their HIV. And finally with this patient, what about methadone and her opioid use disorder? Well, just like the other things I talked about, methadone has really complex interactions with HIV meds. I actually experienced this recently with a patient who was interested in switching meds who was on methadone. So medications to be avoided if someone is on methadone include efavirenz, nevirapine, and etravirine. If needed because of a resistant virus or limited other options, they can be used, but close collaboration with the methadone provider is necessary because methadone adjustments may be necessary. Efavirenz and nefirapine both increase the metabolism of methadone, leading patients to feel withdrawal symptoms. If people are switching off of efavirenz or nefirapine to another agent, what happens is you remove the interaction, resulting in less methadone metabolism, and patients may feel more sedated. So there should be communication between the HIV provider and the methadone program about how the HIV med change could be increasing methadone levels in the person's body and the methadone dose needs to be titrated down. Older boosted PI combinations like lopinavir-ritonavir have been shown also to reduce methadone concentrations, although we don't really use lopinavir-ritonavir anymore. Buprenorphine is often used to treat people with opioid use disorder. It's a partial mu antagonist, and it will have decreased concentrations with efavirenz, but withdrawal symptoms have not been reported. Co-administration of buprenorphine and atazanavir has been associated with increased buprenorphine concentrations and drowsiness in some patients. Well, thank you, Dr. Worsell. Let's move on now to another patient scenario, if you would, please. So a 58-year-old man comes to you, and his virus has been controlled on a boosted atazanavir and two NRTIs for several years. But then on a routine checkup, you notice his HIV viral load has increased from undetectable to about 1,000 copies. He reports he's taking a new medication that he bought at a local pharmacy for acid reflux. How common is it that over-the-counter products interact with HIV medications? I think one of the most common over-the-counter medications is acid-lowering agents like proton pump inhibitors and H2 antagonists. These can really inhibit the absorption of HIV medications. It's particularly true for medications such as rilpilverine and atazanavir, which rely on high gastric acidity for adequate absorption. 
changes in time of taking meds can help with the H2 blockers. So if patients take it, the H2 blockers like ranitidine about two hours before or 10 hours after, that might be okay. But co-administration with proton pump inhibitors is not recommended if the patient's taking real pilverine or atazanavir. Interestingly, things like calcium and magnesium, which are found in medications that are over-the-counter and take it for gastric acidity, also can interact with HIV medications. For people with severe reflux, providers may consider switching to a medication like darunavir that is not affected by gastric acid or even switch to a non-PI like an integrase inhibitor. How about other alternative medications like herbal supplements or vitamins? Can those affect HIV medications? Several studies have shown that complementary or alternative medicines are frequently taken by people living with HIV, and patients may not recognize it, but these compounds have pharmacologically active materials in them, but are not regulated by the FDA. Some common complementary or alternative medications include echinacea, garlic, St. John's wort, ginkgo, ginseng, and even high-dose vitamin C that these can all interact with HIV medications. Often, these don't make it to patient's med list, so specifically asking patients what medications are you taking that are over-the-counter or complementary is important. I just want to talk specifically about St. John's wort, which is really tricky and can decrease the concentration of many HIV medications, including protease inhibitors, ropilverine, dolutegravir, efavirenz, and TAF. I've even seen some patients with muscle cramps who have been prescribed magnesium, but magnesium supplements are contraindicated with raltegravir. Similar to antacids, magnesiums decrease the absorption of raltegravir and can lead to resistance. So other integrase inhibitors have this interaction, but it's not as severe as the interaction with raltegravir. Another possibility is changing the dosing so magnesium is taken two to three hours after the raltegravir. Meds that are probably most commonly used for sleep, such as melatonin, doxylamine, and diphenhydramine, don't have any known interactions with HIV meds. Doctor, I think we've got time for one more patient scenario, so if you would, please. Sure. So you're seeing a patient who's on an efavirenz-containing regimen, and they're experiencing vivid dreams at night, a very common complaint of people who are on efavirenz, and they would like to switch medications. This patient's also on methadone for the treatment of opioid use disorder. He reports that he has a seizure disorder, not on meds, and COPD, and he really wants to take a once-a-day pill that can be taken without food. So you decide to switch him to L-Vitegravir, Cobicistat, Emtricitabine, and TAF. In a patient like this, Dr. Worsell, what potential medication interactions does the clinician need to be aware of? Since efavirenz increases the metabolism of methadone, when you switch him off the efavirenz to the new medication, the methadone dose in his body will increase, and so the patient should be told he may feel more sedated and potentially avoid driving right after the med change. There should be some communication, again, between the HIV doctor and the methadone program. All inhalers he's taking for COPD should be reviewed to minimize the potentiation of steroid effects. We think about TAF as a safe medication, especially since we're often switching people off of TDF to TAF to prevent bone and kidney issues. But I was actually surprised recently when I found out that TAF has interactions that are not present with TDF. Some of those medications that treat seizures, like carbamazepine, is one of those medications that interacts with TAF. So anyone with a history of a seizure disorder, you need to be careful with TAF. Another inducer of this P-glycoprotein mechanism, which TAF is processed through, is rifampin. Since people with HIV sometimes have tuberculosis, if they're on TAF, you should watch out for use of rifampin. 
Thank you, Dr. Roussel, for sharing your expertise in today's cases and discussion. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing what we've talked about in light of our learning objectives. Uh, so to begin, drug-drug interactions that may impact treatment of ischemic heart disease in people living with HIV. I think the take-home message is to be aware in the setting of an acute coronary event or even acute cerebrovascular event that medications like statins, like clopidogrel, even like warfarin can potentially interact with HIV meds and involving the ID pharmacist or looking up these interactions online is important to make sure that there's no negative sequelae to the HIV or to the treatment of the heart disease or stroke. And our second learning objective. HIV medication interactions that could influence the treatment of common comorbid conditions. A common comorbid condition that we see in people with HIV, like asthma, opioid use disorder, depression, or even people who would like to be on oral contraceptives, these are all medications that can interact with HIV, and choosing meds that work well with what the patient wants and also will not affect their HIV treatment is important. And finally, Drug-drug interactions between antiviral agents and commonly used over-the-counter medications. Medications like proton pump inhibitors and St. John's wort can be bought over-the-counter and can interact with HIV meds. It's important for HIV clinicians to specifically ask patients about taking over-the-counter medications. Dr. Elise Roussel from Tufts Medical Center, thank you for participating in this eHIV Review podcast. Thanks for having me. I hope this has been helpful to your listeners. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.ehivreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the EHIV Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME credit. EHIV Review is emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with HIV, including infectious disease specialists, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and others. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eHIV Review via email, please go to our website, www.ehivreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and Vive Healthcare. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Thank you for listening.